Amen. That was great. Uh, if you reach for your Bibles, we will uh, have our morning scripture reading. Today we'll be reading out of the passage of 2 Peter 3, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Uh, if you require a pew Bible, you can find it in front of you. You can find it on page 1,209. Pastor Bruce continuing in his series today. Please follow along with me as I read. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good to us. I thank you for this opportunity to gather together and worship, and the opportunity today to gather even earlier to uh, dig into your word, join our community together, God, of like-minded people who wish to follow after you, God. I pray that you would uh, give Bruce the words to speak this morning, that you would uh, pierce our hearts with what he has to say for us, what he has to say to us, God, that your word would ring true this morning like it always does. In your name, amen. Well, we are continuing in a series we began last Sunday. It's a, a five-week series, and we're going through the one chapter in the book of 2 Peter. We are making our way through chapter 3 of 2 Peter. And so this series we're simply calling Persevere. That is the overarching theme of what Peter is exhorting us as we live in these last days, to persevere in the faith, to persevere as Christ followers in these last days. Now, as we take a look and we focus on these two verses that Jeremy read for us, I have a confession to make that I want to start out with, and that is I'm an impatient person. Perhaps you can relate to that, which means if you're an impatient person like myself, I do not like to wait. In fact, I abhor waiting and will do almost anything to avoid waiting. But waiting is part of life. Waiting is not something that most of us even like to do. It's not something that most of us relish. We wait in lines to buy groceries. We wait in lines to be seated at restaurants. We wait to go through airport securities. We wait at red lights. We wait at banks. We wait at Department of Motor Vehicles. We wait at the doctor's office. It seems like everywhere we go, we wait in fact, statisticians have estimated that in a lifetime of 70 years, the average person will spend at least, get this, three years just waiting. But for us, living in Kansas City, that average is probably more like 13 years, given all the waiting and traffic we do to all the never-ending road construction that we have throughout our city. As Christ followers, though, we are also waiting. And we are waiting for something much more significant. We are waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, we have been waiting for almost 2,000 years for Jesus to come again. And it is this wait that has now fueled the scoffers' attack on the second coming of Jesus Christ, which Peter is addressing in this particular chapter. In fact, we might summarize it this way. Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. The scoffers scorn, in fact, their sneering scorn is basically this, 
that Jesus has delayed his coming so long that it is foolish or even naive to believe that he's coming back. This sneering scorn was infecting the churches that Peter was writing to. It was causing doubt among the believers in these churches. In fact, Peter has already dismantled their argument, the scoffers' argument, in the previous verses. We saw that last Sunday in verses 5 through 7. And he basically said their argument is based on the assumption that God does not intervene in history. And last Sunday, we saw how Peter exposed their flawed reasoning of that argument by pointing out two historical facts in which God powerfully intervened, but they deliberately choose to ignore. That is the creation and the flood. And so what Peter does now is he returns to their question in verse 4, where they scornfully ask, they they mockingly ask, where is the promise of his coming? The implication with this question they're, they're asking is that God is somehow slow or slack in the fulfillment of his promises. That God has a problem with punctuality. That God has promised more than he can ever deliver. But let's be honest, how many of us have thought the same thing? Perhaps we've never expressed it, but we maybe have thought it. And it's okay if you have. It doesn't mean you're a scoffer. It may mean you're just tired of waiting for Christ to come. It may mean that you long for the return of Jesus Christ. Or it may even mean that you're seeking legitimate answers to questions like, why the delay of Christ's return? What can a good God possibly be waiting for? Why the delay? Why doesn't he come sooner? Where is the promise of his coming? And these are legitimate questions that deserve a direct answer. And that's what Peter gives us here in verses 8 and 9 of 2 Peter chapter 3. But before he ever answers these questions, notice again how Peter begins here in particular in verse 8 when he says, but do not overlook this one fact And then notice what he says, beloved, beloved, don't overlook this one fact. Now, this is the second time Peter calls these believers beloved. And that's very intentional on Peter's part. Why would he do this? Why is he calling them beloved again? Because he wants these believers to know, just as he wants you to know, that you are the recipients of God's saving love. Listen, they are loved by God. You are loved by God. And we see that love first and foremost through his son, Jesus Christ. And Peter also wants them to know how much he himself cares for them. These believers that he's writing to, he calls them beloved because he loves them. So they are loved by God and they are loved by Peter. And that is his concern as he writes this letter of 2 Peter and especially here in chapter 3. Peter again emphasizes something that we looked at last Sunday, something that is very crucial to persevering in the last days, and that is remembering. We saw this last Sunday that we must remember God's word in these last days. These scoffers, they they deliberately overlooked the fact that God's word was both reliable and it was powerful. 
They ignored that fact. By contrast, now Peter is writing to us and he is telling us, listen, we here as believers in Christ, we must not overlook this one fact. You say, well, what is that one fact? Well, notice it. We might summarize it this way. Here's Peter's loving concern. He says, beloved, listen, don't overlook what God is like. In other words, don't overlook the character of who God is when it comes to the promise of his coming. Don't overlook that fact. Remember that. Impress it upon your heart. And so what is God like? Well, Peter tells us three things about God that we must always keep in focus, that we must not overlook, that we must remember in these last days. So what is God like? First, we see here, number one, that the Lord's perspective on time is different than ours. The Lord's perspective on time is much different than ours. Look again what Peter writes in verse 8. See it for yourselves. Look in your Bibles where he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. You see, the scoffers in Peter's day They were saying something like this. Jesus has delayed his comings for so long that we can't really believe he's coming back now. And so you'd have to be a fool to believe that he's coming again, or at least naive. Now for us, this present age of waiting, it seems so long, does it not? In fact, so long that we ourselves, we might find ourselves even doubting a little bit that Jesus will ever return at all. And so Peter reminds us here that from God's perspective, it hasn't been very long at all. And why is that? Because God is not like us. Listen, his perspective on time is radically different than our perspective of time. And so what seems like forever for us is but a short time for God. Just as an hour may seem to be a very long time for your child, but to you as a parent or as an adult, it's but a moment in time. In fact, as one commentator, he put it this way, all time is as nothing before God, because in the presence and nature of God, all is eternity. Therefore, nothing is long, nothing is short before him, no lapse of ages and perishes purposes. And so the reason God's perspective on time is so radically different than our perspective is because God is eternal, and he dwells in eternity. This means God has neither beginning nor ending. In other words, while God works in time, in fact, we already saw that last Sunday, God works in our time. He works and intervenes into our history. And we saw how God intervenes in human history. We saw that Peter makes the argument that he did that in a cataclysmic way in the flood. God also intervened in another way when he sent his son Jesus Christ to be born of the flesh. And so God works in time, but he is not limited by time the way that we are, nor does he measure time the way that we do. Charles Spurgeon adds, he says, all things are equally near and present to God's view. The distance of a thousand years before the occurrence of an event is no more to him than would be the interval of a day. With God, indeed, there is neither past, present, nor future. He takes for his name the I am. He is the I am. 
I am in the present. I am in the past. I am in the future. And so just as we say of God that he is everywhere, so we may say of him that he is always. He is everywhere in space. He is everywhere in time. And to help us to to better understand God's perspective on time, Peter shows us now the contrast between our temporal existence and God's eternal nature. In fact, Peter draws this truth from Psalm chapter 90, where Moses writes in that chapter from verses 1 through 4. Listen to what he says. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, Moses says. He says, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Here's the point that Peter's making. God's view of time It differs from our view of time, as Peter reminds us. And that's why he says here in chapter 3, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now, we need to be careful here, and we need to understand this properly, that this is an analogy and not an equation. And here's what I mean by that. Look in your notes or on the screen. Peter does not say that one day equals a thousand years. Or a thousand years equals even one day. But rather, it is like a thousand years or one day. Now, some people have misunderstood this to be some sort of mathematical formula. And they've attempted by this to date all sorts of events, including Jesus' coming. But Peter's statement here does not represent a mathematical formula or even a prophetic formula. Rather, it is a general principle regarding how we see time and how God sees time. Peter's simply reminding us that that we are time-bound creatures. But God himself, he is not limited by our perceptions of time. Therefore, since a thousand years are like one day to God, we should not doubt God's promise to return. Nor should we accuse God of even being slow or slack in keeping his promise. After all, God sees time with a perspective that we don't have. Even the delay of a thousand years may well seem like a day against the backdrop of eternity. So don't doubt the promise of Christ's coming. Listen, yes, it's almost been 2,000 years since Christ's ascension to heaven. But from Christ, but from God's perspective on time, it's as though Christ arrived at his right hand the day before yesterday. So what else is God like that we should not overlook? Well, as we've already seen, the first is don't overlook the fact that the Lord's perspective on time is different than ours. Number two, the Lord is also patient toward us. That's something else that he is like that we should not overlook, that we should keep in mind, that we should always remember in these last days that the Lord is patient toward us. Now, it is obvious that we live in a generation that's extremely impatient. 
Now, if you don't believe me, try this experiment sometime. The next time you're at, you're the first car sitting at a red light, just wait three seconds after the light turns green before accelerating. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, and before you can get to three, I predict two things will happen to you. First, the car behind you is going to start honking their horn, and they're not going to let off on it. And two, I will probably be the one behind you blowing my horn at you. Listen, God is, is not only so unlike us in his perspective of time, he is incredibly patient toward us as well. The Apostle Paul speaks in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, about the, the full number of Gentiles who must come into the kingdom before the end arrives. Therefore, we should count the seeming delay of Christ's coming as an act of God's abundant mercy and patience until all the sheep are gathered into the fold and not one is lost. In other words, listen, our God is a very long-suffering God who is mercifully, graciously drawing people to himself that we might repent and be saved so that we can be reconciled back to a holy God. Think of it this way. You don't have to raise your hand, but in your own heart, think of it this way. How many of you were saved? That is, you put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. You were saved in just the last year. Or perhaps how many of you were saved in the last five years? Or maybe the last 10 years? Some of you, it's 20 years, and for some, it's even maybe 30 years ago. Aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't return 30 years ago or even one year ago? Because his delay gave you an opportunity to repent of your sin to come to Jesus Christ in saving faith. Oh, as much as we long for Jesus to come and rescue us from this fallen world, there is a compassionate purpose in God's timing. This is what Peter is telling us not to overlook about God in verse 9. Look at it. Look what he says. He writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, Here are three truths to remember, three truths to keep in mind in these last days. Number one, the first truth is this. If the Lord has promised something, it will happen in his ordained time, not on our schedule. Peter seems to be alluding to the charges of these scoffers when he writes in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. In other words, these scoffers were saying that because Jesus had not yet returned yet, his promise to return, it now must be void. It must not be valid. They wrongly presumed that because God wasn't acting on their time schedule, their timetable, then God can't be trusted. But we must not make the mistake of God's patience for slowness. Listen, God is never tardy. God is never off schedule. In fact, you go to verse 20 here in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, and there Peter refers to God's patience during the days of Noah building the ark. 
And so for at least 100 years, God waited patiently while Noah built the ark and preached repentance to people. And then in God's perfect time, what did God do? He brought judgment with the flood. And in the same way, in God's perfect time, Jesus will come in judgment. And when that judgment comes, all who have not responded in repentance will miss the ark of salvation that is provided in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the second truth, that God's seeming delay is not due to his indifference. Listen, God's delay of coming is not due to his inability to come. Rather, it is due to his compassion for sinners like you and I. You say, why hasn't Jesus come yet? And that's a, it's a valid question. Why hasn't he come? And according to Peter, it's because God wants us to dwell with him forever. And so God's apparent slowness, folks, listen, it is our salvation. His slowness is your salvation. Peter says the same thing here in this particular chapter in verse 15, where he says also, regard the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation. And so God delays the coming of Christ in judgment because of his compassion for sinners and because he wants to give us the opportunity to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, God's seeming delay is actually an indication that he does have a plan for this world and that he is working out his redemptive plan. You say, well, what is God's plan? It's to save people from all nations and all tribes and all languages. That's his redemptive plan. Who will bring him glory for all eternity. This is God's redemptive plan for mankind. And we know that it is made possible through God's son, Jesus Christ. And so there should be no doubt in anybody's mind here this morning whether God wants sinners to be saved. The answer is yes. And Peter says in verse 9 that God is He's not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You go over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, and there Paul affirms that God wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And of course, most of us here are familiar with John 3, 16, where Jesus says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. So does this mean then that all people will be saved? After all, if God does not wish that any should perish, should we then conclude that everyone will go to heaven when they die or when Jesus comes? I mean, is Peter here teaching universalism? Is he teaching that that love wins regardless of one's response to Jesus Christ? And I would say to you, the answer is no, because we must understand that all God makes a way. He has provided a way through Jesus Christ for all people to be saved. That does not mean that all people will respond to the gospel and be saved. You see, we must distinguish here between what God wishes and what God wills. This is part of the mystery of the sovereignty of God. Listen, God genuinely desires in one sense that all will be saved. 
even if he has not ultimately decreed in another sense that all will be saved. Therefore, I I affirm that God loves the world with a deep compassion and he desires the salvation of all people, but I also affirm that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world whom he will save from sin, and therefore some people will be saved while many people will not be saved. In fact, they will perish for eternity. It's part of the mystery of God's sovereignty. And yet we submit to that. We we yield ourselves to something that we have a difficult time comprehending in our limited human understanding. And we trust God because we trust his character who he is, and his ways are greater than our ways. His ways are much higher than our ways, and he is working his redemptive plan for humanity. And if you are one who is saved here this morning, then be thankful, be grateful, and praise God that he has opened up your eyes to see your need for Jesus Christ, and you have repented of your sins, and you are now part of the eternal family of God. And if you are not, then be thankful that you are here this morning and you are hearing the message of the gospel because it is still true for you. You can respond to the gospel even now and be saved. You can be rescued from this fallen world. Do I understand everything about there is to understand when it comes to all this? No. But I take God at his word and I trust it even when I don't understand everything in all of his ways when it comes to his sovereignty and salvation of humanity. It brings us to a third truth, that the purpose of God's patience is to lead us to repentance and not to unbelief. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, the tragic irony here is that these scoffers were taking God's patience, which was giving them an opportunity to repent, and they were turning it against God as evidence that Christ is not coming. Listen, it will be an unanswerable indictment on the judgment day when God asked these particular scoffers in Peter's day and throughout history, why did you take my gift of time for repenting and use it as an argument for your unbelief? So what is repentance since we're talking about it? You probably have heard that word. We use that word here. It's a necessary component for salvation. So what is repentance? Well, repentance... As Jesus preached in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so to repent means to change one's mind about something. And in this case, it means to change one's mind first about our sin, who we are as sinners, and then to change our mind about who God is and his son, Jesus Christ. Repentance is not regret. Listen, the world is full of people with regret. Repentance is not regret, which usually simply means being sorry that I got caught for something. Repentance is not remorse either. 
which is simply a hopeless attitude that can lead oftentimes to despair. So repentance is not regret. It is not remorse. Repentance is a change of heart that results in a change of life. And if we honestly change our mind about sin, if we change our mind about who we are as sinners, we will turn from it. And if we honestly change our minds about who Jesus is and why he came, why he died on the cross, why he is now ascended into heaven and resurrected to go there, we will now turn to him for what he's done for us. He's paid the penalty for our sin. And so repentance is a change of heart that results in a change of life. Now, before we move on, I want you to notice the word here. At the end of verse 9, it's the word reach. If you notice in your Bibles, look what Peter writes. He says that all should reach, or sometimes it's translated as come to repentance. And so this word translated reach or come to, it carries the meaning of make room for. In other words, we must make room for repentance in our hearts. You say, how do I do that? First, you've got to humble yourself. There is no room in anyone's heart as long as they are prideful. There is no room for repentance in one's heart until we humble ourselves and we put away our pride and humbly then admit our need for salvation in Jesus Christ. So no one reaches repentance or comes to repentance until they humble themselves. They put away the pride, which, by the way, is the root of all of our sin. We are prideful creatures by birth. We want to be our own God, just like Adam and Eve. And so we have to humble ourselves, make room for this repentance, make room for Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us repentance is actually a gift from God, but we must make room for the gift. So let me ask us a question here this morning. Have you made room for God's gift of repentance? Has God's patience, has it led you to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus in faith for your salvation? The good news is that God wants to save you from the coming judgment. God went to a great sacrifice to provide salvation by sending his own son to die on the cross and pay the penalty for all who repent and believe. But God's patience will not last forever, church. Jesus is coming. That is the promise we have. Jesus is coming. Jesus may return at any time. And when he does, it will be too late for salvation. As the Bible says, now is the day of salvation. So don't presume on the patience of God in his delay of his son. Which brings us to the last truth about God we must not overlook. The Lord will keep his promise to come again. The Lord will keep his promise to come again. Notice what Peter immediately writes next in verse 10. He says, but, and that word but is a contrast to what he is talking about in verse 9. The patience of God. But, Peter says, the day of the Lord will come. And so he is contrasting the two. This is the precise 
counterbalance to what Peter's just argued. God is patient, or patient, but He will come. And both the patience and coming have been promised. So understand, there will be a day when God says in Revelation chapter 10, verse 6, there will be no more delay. And when that promised day comes, it will be a glorious day for some and a very shocking day for others, depending on one's relationship to God. What kind of day will that be for you when Jesus comes? What will that day be like for you? Will that be a welcome day, a glorious day, because you are ready for the return of Jesus Christ? Or will that be a shocking day? Oh, no, I'm not prepared. I'm not ready. What does Christ's coming mean for me today? What does it mean for our church here today? Let me leave you with these two things. Number one, first of all, is to make sure you know Christ is your Savior and Lord before it's too late. That is the first thing we should contemplate and think about. Listen, it is possible, church, to stand around the fringe of God's family and to actually feel like you are part of His eternal family and yet only be on the outside of that, to be a spectator of the family of God. And so maybe you've stood on the sidelines or you've sat in the stands of a football game and you have felt every high and every low. Some of you maybe went to the Chiefs home opener last Sunday. And man, you were there with 80,000 people And, man, that fourth quarter, you were like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. We won. We pulled it out. You felt like it. I mean, it was just unbelievable. As you're walking to your car after the game, you say, wow, what a great game. We won. But in truth, you weren't really in the game at all. You were simply a spectator in the stands. You did not win. The team did. And in the same way, it is possible that you are not truly part of the family of God here this morning. You say, how do I know that? How how can I know if I'm truly in the family of God? How do I evaluate that? Well, here's a, a few questions to ask yourself. Questions like, do I see myself as someone who has sinned and needs to be forgiven in order to be be right with God? Or do I think I'm doing a pretty good job all on my own? Do I embrace Jesus as my only hope? Do I believe He really was God in human form, that He really died as a payment for my sin, and that He really did physically rise from the dead? Or do I see Jesus as my only hope of being right with God? Do I see Him that way? Have I really turned to Christ? Have I surrendered to Him and resolved to trust Him in His Word in my life? Am I living differently because of God's Spirit is now changing my heart? He's changing my desire. So now that my life, my priorities are different than previously, than before. Remember the Lord's patience. It is an opportunity for salvation. But when Jesus returns, listen, judgment will begin. Jesus came the first time as our Savior, but do you realize when Jesus returns, He's not coming back as a Savior. He is coming back as judge. And so run to Jesus Not so much because you are afraid of judgment or that you don't want to be left behind, but rather run to Jesus because He loves you. Run to Him because He wants to lead you to the life that you were made to live in the family of God. And so the first truth that we should take home with this is to evaluate, to look in in the mirror and make sure that you know Christ as your Savior and Lord before it is too late.
Number two, be bold in sharing the gospel with those who don't know Christ before it's too late. Listen, our mission here at LifeBridge is right here on the banner. It is the bridge, the gap with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? So that more people might be forgiven of their sins and be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know who's going to believe, do we? And we don't know who is not going to believe. And so our mission is to be bold in sharing the gospel with everyone. And so this text right here, what Peter's writing, it cautions us against an attitude that says, oh, there's plenty of time to tell my story of salvation, how God changed my life. There's plenty of time to share the gospel with that family member or coworker or friend or person I go to school with. I got next week, I got next month, I got whatever. But this text, what Peter's saying here, it should caution us against that attitude. Why? Because this could be the very day that Jesus returns, right? Amen? Wouldn't that be glorious if God returned today? This could be the last day, though, of that person's life. And so we need to be aware in a sense that I need to share the good news of Jesus with boldness and do so with a sense of urgency, that Jesus could come at any moment, any day. As we close, remember this. We do not know how much time is left before Jesus returns. Perhaps it will be in our lifetimes, but perhaps not. What we do know is this. Someday, Jesus will return. Someday, he will return to gather his people to himself. And this should not so much scare us as it should motivate us to make sure that we here are ready and to motivate us to share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Let's pray. As we bow our heads and as we respond to the gospel, as we respond to the words here in the scriptures, I want to ask you to do a couple things. One is, to think of one person who is lost without Christ. And because they are lost without Christ, they are standing in the way of God's judgment right now. And as you think about that person, as you have their face pictured in your mind, would you just pray for them? And as you pray for them, for God to open up their hearts, to see themselves as a sinner, and to see their need for Jesus Christ, would you also ask God to give you the boldness, the opportunity to share Christ with them, and that they would respond. But maybe some of you are also here, and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want to encourage you to run to him, and repent of your sins, and tell him you want to trust him for your salvation. You can express that silently in a prayer to God, and he will save you. And so I want us to give a few minutes here, a moment of silence for us to go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Oh, thank you so much for providing salvation through Jesus Christ. Thank you for being patient with us, 
that we may come to repentance of our sin and faith in Jesus. Give us the grace to persevere in these last days, knowing that you will keep your promise to rescue us from this fallen world. Father, we look forward to Jesus coming again, and may our lives bear testimony to this glorious hope. In the meantime, Lord, help us to persevere. Give us that grace, but also help us to be motivated with a sense of boldness and urgency to share the gospel with those around us in our circles, where we live, where we work, where we go to school, so that they may come to that same opportunity of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.